uh, ability to uh, to speak prophetically. And uh, and he's a mighty man of God. Uh, we need to be praying for his wife and his his daughter couldn't be with us this morning. Uh, but as he prepares to come up this morning, I want you to have a spirit of faith to receive. Because as you have an expectation for what the man of God is bringing forth from the word of the Lord, it's going to boomerang back to you. God's going to meet that expectation and you are going to be blessed tremendously because of it. So why don't we give uh, Mr. Klein, Russ Klein, uh, a warm welcome of applause as he come up this morning to minister to us. Thank you, Pastor. All right. I think I'm turned on. Hallelujah. There we go. Well, good morning. Yeah, it's great to be with you all. I hear you've had a tremendous week. How many of you gotten to be part of the, the services this week? I understand God's moved powerfully, spoken prophetically into many of your lives, and it's exciting. It really is. Uh, Pastor, thank you for allowing me to come and be with you. My wife and daughter do send the greetings. Uh, Kim, my wife, we just celebrated this year our 25th wedding anniversary back in May. And uh, she's, she's doing well. We, at the beginning of the year, Kim contracted mono, mononucleosis. As we were traveling, she was in St. Louis, Missouri, and, and unfortunately got that bug. And she's in recovery, but um, she's still a little worn out. And then my daughter, Shekinah, some of you remember little Shekinah. She was a miracle after Kim and I had been married for 17 years and couldn't have children. God said otherwise. And so we have a little girl, Shekinah, which is the Hebrew word for the glory of God. But Shekinah just turned eight years old a week ago and uh so it's hard to believe how quickly it goes we her and i were up in canada on our birthday and so we went to niagara falls and had a good time up there but uh they they send their greeting shekinah ended up with a, a cough that was starting to go deep in her chest and so we're, we're believing god to touch her but we didn't want to uh so you know uh, expose you to her germs and and her to yours so uh anyway she is in recovery It's exciting to be with you. I'm going to take just a moment and give you a little idea of what we do. Pastor Gary was saying that we we travel and we do. Kim and I have been traveling for 23 years now around the world in ministry. And so he knows we were singing a song, God, I ask for the nations, believe for the the distant shores and the islands. That that just stirred again, that passion in my heart. Kim and I in 1980, let me see, let me pull back just a little bit here. In 1986, we began traveling full time uh, around America. And then in 1989, we began going uh, to the nations with a trip to then communist Poland. And since then, God's done a lot of wonderful things. About, see, what is this, 99, about 11 years ago or so, we connected with Ron Johnson. Most of you know Ron. Um, and connected with him in Bethel Temple in Hampton. Began traveling not only to the nations, but specifically to reach those that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so over the years, we've had opportunity to go to China, to Pakistan, to India, to Africa, uh, to the Middle East, to Asia, many different places. And, and God has been faithful in doing that. But how many of you know that God is at work here in North America as well, right here in the U.S.? And so even over the last few weeks, God's been doing some powerful things. About a month ago, Pastor Ron Johnson and I had opportunity to go to Dearborn Heights, Michigan, outside of Detroit. And I don't know if you've heard of Dearborn before, but Dearborn is where the Muslims have targeted to be their first city that they take over in America. It has the largest Muslim population in Dearborn Heights, Michigan, the largest Muslim population outside of the Middle East. And so Pastor Ron and I had a chance to go and minister at an apostolic prophetic conference there they called Ground Zero. 
and, and God literally is beginning to shake. In fact, I just talked to the pastor a couple of days ago. He called and was so excited as they listened back to the prophetic and apostolic words over the church, and there were numerous churches together. They said it was amazing what God did, but do you know that just after that, and I'm not necessarily going to try to say it was because we were there, but God's at work, that in Dearborn, they busted a terrorist ring, and, and in, the, in the process, they weren't trying to kill an imam, but an imam, a Muslim holy man, who was the, the point man for this terrorist ring there in Dearborn, was, was killed. Uh, by police during this, this whole time. And we believe that God is uncovering the plot of the enemy uh, in, in the midst of all this. So it was an exciting time because we know this. As the apostolic and the prophetic come in, as the power of Christ comes in in fullness, it's going to uncover the plot of the enemy. And so it was a powerful time. And then Shekinah and I went on from Detroit to Ottawa, Canada. And God did some powerful things up there. One day, a, a hitchhiker, 23 years old, nobody was sure if it was a man or woman. You ever seen one of those people? And, and you know, it was, it was a guy, 23 years old, but he had on uh, earrings, long hair, and painted nails. So people were trying to figure out what it was. But no matter what it was, he got saved. He, he, he hitchhiked uh, in, caught a ride to church with somebody, and, and uh, he wasn't coming to church. He just needed a ride. They said, we'll pick you up, but we're going to take you to church first. But they gave him a place to stay for the night, food, some money to get on the way. But um, I ministered to him. Others ministered to him. And then a family took him home. And as they were getting him something to eat, after midnight, they were talking to him and led him to Jesus. And so, you know, thank God that, how many of you know, it takes all of us working together. It's not, well, the preacher does it. All of us doing our part. I heard one of the good messages you heard this week is something about coming, uh, arising out of your condition and coming into your position. And that, that means every one of us have a part to play in what God's doing. And a few weeks ago, we were in San Francisco ministering, and this one church we were at, it's right, it's outside of Oakland, California. Oakland right now has one of the highest murder rates in America. I don't know if you caught that news story a few days ago about the 15-year-old girl in Riverside, California, that after homecoming dance was gang raped. I don't know if you caught that. And, and, you know, several involved and several witnesses doing nothing about it. Well, that's all in this area that, that we were just at. If you remember that same area just a couple months ago, the young girl that had gotten... Um, uh, kidnapped and kept for several years by a man who ended up having several children uh, by her and, and hiding her in a conclave in the same area. That area is rife right now with sin, with crime, with a lot of other things, but God is moving powerfully. Uh, one night we were doing a service there, and th there were about 40 teenagers. M most of them had never been in church, many of them living lives of homosexuality, bisexuality, whatever it is, both men and women, young men and women. And God powerfully brought many of them to Jesus Christ that night, and we began prophesying. My little then seven-year-old daughter was standing side by side prophesying over about a dozen teenagers. And, and it's, it's exciting what God's up to. In the midst of, you, you were talking about that earlier, Pastor, that in the midst of darkness and, and these things, we're going to see the glory of God shine brighter and brighter. And so we're excited about the days in which we live. Isaiah 60, we're not going to preach from that, but Isaiah 60 tells us to arise and shine. For the light of God has come, His glory has risen upon us. And we believe we're in that day when God's glory is shaking the nations of the earth. And it says darkness is going to cover the earth, thick darkness is over the people. You know, as I, as I travel in America, as I travel the world, I believe there's no time in the history of the earth that darkness has been darker. 
And I'm just saying, we've had dark times in history, but there are now 7 billion people approximately on this planet. Multiply that by the darkness in people's hearts, and I believe that darkness is greater than ever before, but God's glory is arising. And I fully believe the glory of God is not a feeling, it's not an experience, it's not a manifestation. The glory of God is Jesus Christ being exhibited in and through our lives. And it says in Isaiah 60 that nations will come to your light. We sang a song about believing God for nations. How many of you know to get nations, we've got to get cities? <laughs> to get cities, we've got to get neighborhoods and spheres of influence, and that takes getting families. And I believe God in this day is bringing forth what pastor's talking about, and that is a kingdom mindset. Now, Jesus said, I will build my church, speaking of himself. So what I believe is this. As believers, our focus is not building the church. I, I, you know, I've never pastored. I thank God for pastors. I love pastors, but they have to put up with people. So we that travel, we come in and preach, you know, blow in, blow up, and blow out. Uh, you know, say, I thank God for pastors. But, you know, the, the kind of heart I have sometimes is, look, let me ask a question. How many of you have ever been hurt by somebody? Ever been betrayed? Ever had somebody do something wrong to you? Welcome to the human race. Get healed and get a life. See, that, that's, see, that's why I don't pastor. I'm like, get healed. That's fine. Get healed. Get in. Get in his love. Get healed. But get a life. Quit living in the past. Come on, come on. Pastor Ron says something. He says, your identity is not, uh, how does he say, our identity is not our history. It's our destiny. Come on, come on. Think about that for a moment. Who you are is not based on the good, bad, and ugly of the past. Who we are, our identity, is based on what God's making us. Where I came from, I came from a broken family with mental illness, alcoholism, and physical abuse. That's what I grew up in. I was a fat, shy little kid from a broken, abusive family, and yet God, somewhere in the midst of that, put his hand on me and said, I've called you to be a prophet to the nations. Not based on anything I had, anything I could do, but because of the grace of God and the mercy of God. And God is looking at each one of us, regardless of our history, regardless of whether we were victims or whether we were the ones that were the perpetrators of great evil, but God's looking at us through the eyes of Jesus. The, um, you were talking about the righteousness. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. And so it's through that God is seeing us, and I believe raising up a people of glory in these last days. The way God has spoken it into our hearts is that we're entering a season that can be called the best of times and the worst of times. I believe as we march toward the end of time, we're going to see evil increase. We're going to see darkness increase. There will be a falling away. The disciples asked Jesus, what are the signs of the end and your soon return? How many of you know we're getting close to the return of Christ? What does it talk about? It talks about wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, pestilence. And by the way, aren't these pretty flowers? They bought them for Kim. But I guess I get them now. <laughs> well, I'll make sure, I'll make sure that she thinks they're from me. So, you know, no. Thank you all for your, your, um, your generosity thinking of our family. But it says there will be wars, rumors, wars, famine, earthquake, pestilence. We see this all around us. It says there will be false Christs and false prophets. Now, I used to imagine that just meant that people are going to stand up declaring that they're Jesus Christ and deceive many. Now, the Bible says, though, that even those of us who are the very elect have to be careful that we don't get deceived. Now, think about this. If I stood here and said, I am Jesus Christ, how many of you would have no problem telling that I was in deception? So why is Jesus warning even the very elect? Now, this is not a doctrine, but could it be? What does the word Christ mean? Do you know? It means anointed one. 
So could it be? It doesn't say people are going to say, I'm Jesus Christ. It says people are going to be false Christ. May I say it this way? False anointed ones. I believe one of the dangers in the modern-day Pentecostal and charismatic church is that we follow anyone who says, I'm anointed. I'm the anointed one. I wave and people fall under the power. I get revelation knowledge. I can preach good. Whatever our, our, our thing anointed is, or I have wealth, which we think is the anointing. Anything that is, is equated with the anointing, we have a tendency to idolize in the charismatic Pentecostal movement. So I believe that as we rush toward the last days, the deception we've got to be aware of is anything that doesn't point to Jesus. You said it earlier, Pastor. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10 says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Even in the prophetic, it's not about how many angels we see, how many times we fly to the third heavens, and how many people we can give details of their life. I can take you to witch doctors in Africa that can take people's pain away. I can take you to psychics that can tell you details about your life. It's not just about the gifts and the power. It's about Jesus. He's got to stay the focus. So as, we're, as you're ending this, this week of consecration, thank God for all the things he's done, but it comes back to Jesus Christ and him crucified. Over the last couple of years, I've, I've, I've struggled with some things. Um, not, not sin outwardly, but I've struggled with being very disillusioned with the church, disillusioned with the apostolic movement, the prophetic movement, the renewal movement, disillusioned with a lot of stuff in church because I saw a lot of people focus on gifts and power and personalities rather than Jesus. For a little while, I got bitter. I got resentful. God had to deal with me. He had to slap me around in his mercy and grace some. But God has brought me back to that, that scripture that Paul said, I've determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the Lord has been redirecting my ministry where it's not, where, where I wasn't off preaching other things other than Jesus, but my focus got more on what he would do rather than him. And that's what you were talking about earlier, Pastor. So I believe God, at this uh, conclusion of this week of consecration, is saying, thank God for power and prophecy and blessing and everything else, but it comes back to Jesus Christ. And that's what's going to change cities and nations. If we truly want to see uh, our city come into the kingdom of God, we want to see nations become our inheritance, it's going to take more than the blessing of God. It's going to take the fullness of Jesus revealed in and through the church. Isaiah 66 asks a question. It says, can a nation be born in a day? Now, how many of you are believing God to truly give you Stafford and the surrounding area for the kingdom of God? We know uh, in, in, um, excuse me, in Joshua, when the people of Israel were going into the promised land, every place they put their foot, it belonged to them. And God is trying to get us to understand that as we walk through society. You know Mark 16 says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, in the original Greek, that literally says, as you go about in your world, you preach the gospel to every creature. That is not a call. God can use it that way, but it's not a call to full-time ministry. It is a call, a command to every believer that as you walk through your sphere of influence, that's your world, then you are to preach the gospel. You are to cast out devils. You are to speak in new tongues. You are to lay hands on the sick and see them healed. There are every uh, segment of society must be influenced by the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not about a bunch of people in church just worried about the ABCs of church growth, attendance, buildings, and cash. Thank God that he will build his church, but our job is not the church, it's the kingdom. We are part of the church, but our job is to extend the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Not far from here, there's a place called King's Dominion. <laughs> and the kingdom of God is a king's dominion. It's not an amusement park, it is where King Jesus has dominion. 
And that means in your sphere of influence, be it the educational system, the business realm, the governmental realm, whatever realm that you have influence in by God, that's the realm you need to bring the kingdom of God in. Have you ever prayed the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come. That will be done. That's not an eternity. We're not saying, oh, Lord, one day after everything else has gone bad, let your kingdom come. It's now. Lord, let your kingdom come. In fact, in the original language, and I'm not an expert there, I just have books that tell me what the original language means. And it says in the original language, that's not a request. Oh, God, please send your kingdom. It is a command. Not commanding God, but speaking from God's authority, commanding our spheres of influence. Kingdom of God come, will of God be done. In the schools, in the business place, in the government, in the healthcare system, in everything, let your kingdom be established. Your will be done. I believe that we have the authority as the church of Jesus Christ that every place we walk, we can see the kingdom of God come in. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of a pastor named Tommy Barnett. Tommy Barnett pastors a large church in Phoenix, Arizona, First Assembly of God, I don't know, 15, 18, 20, 25,000 people, and they've established dream centers in L.A. and then around the world. Well, a few years ago, I was in Stockholm, Sweden, ministering, and Tommy Barnett was there doing a conference and helping them start a dream center. And he had a young man with him. It wasn't his son that helps him in the dream centers, but another young man from a dream center in, in Los Angeles. And the dream center basically it reaches out to people just like you're doing through the, uh, you're talking about the, um, what's it called, the, uh, the outreach you're dealing with, the Axe Home. is just like you're doing is you're not only reaching them physically, but you're giving them training spiritually and practically. That's what the, uh, the uh, dream centers do. But this young man said he got in a hold of a take-it-over mentality. He said, I got, to, I got to a place instead of seeing this as, as um, law, just lost people and, and what's, what are we going to do about them, I began to see the block where I live, the stores where I shop as belonging to me for the kingdom of God. He said, I had to take it over mentality. And that's how we've got to see is that you know, the, the, your next door neighbor, they, they are your inheritance. We say the nation's our inheritance. Well, it starts with next door. How can we take the nations if we don't take those that are next door to us? So God is wanting us to be able to start walking in a place of kingdom influence uh, for the purposes of God. But I believe we're moving into a time where we're going to see not only uh, souls saved, but we're going to see whole segments of society, cities, regions, and even nations impacted by the glory of God in such a way that I pray that God will in a day bring a city to him. Now, can it happen? Isaiah 66 that I read says, can a nation be born in a day? And the answer is yes. God in one moment of time can accomplish what we think would take a lifetime in our family, our city, our sphere of influence, our nation to do. So I want to take you to a story in scripture where a nation was born in a day and learn how we can walk in that kind of glory. Turn with me, if you will, to Micah. Micah chapter 6. You're going to have to search probably a little bit to figure where Micah is. Micah chapter 6. This is going to be a jump off point, and then we're going to turn to 1 Kings 16, 17, and 18. But in Micah chapter 6, God is speaking through the prophet, and he has something difficult to say, something hard to say. How many of you know God speaks loving words, God speaks merciful words, but sometimes he speaks words of correction? Sometimes he speaks words that are not as easy to hear, that we don't always jump up and down about and say hallelujah. Anybody want to hear that kind of word for a moment? <laughs> Here's what God speaks. To see if this applies to any nation that you know of. 
Micah 6, and I believe it's starting here about verse 9. God says, do you expect me to overlook obscene wealth that you've piled up by cheating and fraud? Do you think I'll tolerate shady deals and shifty scheming? I'm tired of the violent rich bullying their way with bluffs and lies. I'm fed up. Beginning now, you're finished. You'll pay for your sins down to your last cent. No matter how much you get, it will never be enough. Hollow stomachs and empty hearts. No matter how hard you work, you'll have nothing to show for it. Bankrupt lives and wasted souls. You'll plant grass but never get a lawn. You'll make jelly but never spread it on your bread. You'll press apples but never drink the cider. You have lived by the standards of your king Omri, the decadent lifestyle of the family of Ahab. Because you've slavishly followed their fashions, I'm forcing you into bankruptcy. Your way of life will be laughed at, a tasteless joke. Your lives will be derided as futile and fake. Where are the hallelujahs? <laughs> God, I believe, is speaking to the nation of America and to the church in this nation. I believe, as Pastor was saying, that you cannot outgive God. I believe he's a God that, as our daddy, loves to bless us. But he is also a holy God. He's also a God that is asking for, not just asking for, he's demanding from the church a maturity that we have not exhibited. He's asking us to grow up. See, over the last many years, we've been able to run to God and hold on to all of our sins and our attitudes and all these other things, and God will bless us. But how many of you know when you raise children, there comes a day when they've got to do more than just wait for Daddy to bless them. They've got to start exhibiting the character that Daddy's been trying to pour into them. And it's not that Daddy's going to punish them, uh, you know, take away what they need to live to punish them. But there is a place of discipline. In fact, the Word says that if we are not disciplined, then what are we? Does anybody want to use the real word? Bastards. If we are not disciplined, then we are not true children of God. So what is God wanting to do to truly change our cities and nations? I believe God has got to start at the church. Is that what the Word of God says? Judgment begins at the house of God. Now, God said to the people of Israel and Micah, because you have sinned, you followed Omri and Ahab, no matter what you do, you're not going to have enough, and you're going to end up bankrupt, and your lives become a laughingstock to the world around you. 1 Kings 16. Let's see what it was they were being judged for. What does it mean to follow in the ways of Ahab and Ahab, to, of Omri and Ahab? Now, in verse 29 of 1 Kings 16, before we get to that, there have been many kings of Israel. We understand that. Israel had been a theocracy. It had been ruled by God with judges and prophets, but the people wanted to be like all the other nations on earth. Do you remember that? They cried out, God, give us a king. Now, I want to say this. I don't believe America is God's chosen people. I believe the church is God's chosen people. But in this nation, we've been able to exemplify in the past Christian values and Christian ideals, even though it's been broken in many ways, and it's been weak in many ways. It's been the single greatest tool for the gospel of Jesus Christ in the last 200 years in the world. So we as a nation, it seems, are now trying to become like everybody else in the world. We don't want to stand as America that's different, that stands for godly values. We are now trying to find any way to be accepted by the nations of the world. And regardless of whether you're Republican or Democrat, because I don't think God's either one. 
But we have got to understand in our nation, we are now crying out to be accepted by the world instead of standing for what's right. And there's a judgment that comes along with that, that America is, is right now running towards. Now, King Omri had been the most evil king that Israel had ever had up to that point. But then listen to what it says. Verse 29, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became, of Israel, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. So Omri had been the most evil king up to that point. Then Ahab, Omri's son, became king. Verse 30, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So Omri had been the worst king, but his son was even worse. You ever heard the statement, what parents allow in moderation, their children will practice in excess? Sometimes we look at the younger generation, at the violence, at the crudity, at the, the immorality among the young generation and say, how in the world is this happening? Eight, nine, 10, 12-year-old kids doing some of these things. I believe in many ways it's because the adult population of our nation and much of it, the adult population in the church, have not stood with values that are godly and kingdom values. Anything that, anything that makes us feel good like the world, then we do it. There is very little difference in the lifestyle of those that claim Jesus and those that don't. Now, I'm not talking about here about legalism. I'm not talking about you're accepted because you do everything right. I'm accepted not because I do everything right, but because he loves me, because Christ loves me. You too. In fact, you know what I love? One of the things I love about God is God doesn't just love me. He enjoys me. He doesn't just put up with me. All right, have you ever been around somebody, you, you, you love them, but you have to put up with them? You know, uh, what is it, Zephaniah? I think it is in chapter 1, verse 17, says, he, God rejoices over us with singing. The literal picture there in the Hebrew is that God, when he looks at us, gets such a kick out of us, he's in heaven going, wee! Now understand, he's the God of the universe. He's a God of holiness and justice and righteousness, but he's a God who's passionately in love with his people. And so God's not just putting up with you. He's not going, man, when will they get it right? He's pulling for you. He's cheering for you. But in the midst of all of that, he's still a holy God that cannot deny the nature of who he is because true love is not allowing sin to go unchecked. True love is that God's going to confront the church face to face with our idolatry and our sin because judgment begins at the house of God. So the people of Israel had an evil king, Omri. His son took it to the next dimension extreme. Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Verse 31, Ahab not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, <clears throat> excuse me, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. So... The king of the land, the government of the land, not only served idols, turned from God, served idols, he married a woman who served idols, and he encouraged the whole nation to serve idols. Listen to what it says he did. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Now, can I get a little controversial? Okay, well, if, if I can't, I'm going to anyway. Go for it. Go for it. Hallelujah. Let me say it again clearly. I don't believe God's Republican or Democrat. But can I tell you, I believe America has been making choices, not based on race, not based on economy, but based on looking for somebody to be a Messiah figure for this nation. Amen. Shortly after President Obama was elected, and this is not pro or anti-President Obama, 
Shortly after President Obama was elected, a comedian on television was introducing what we thought was going to be President Obama. And he gave this powerful speech about a man who would change, bring change to America and change to the nations. And the spotlight fell on a door. The door opened. And everybody expecting President Obama to walk out, but instead it was an actor dressed like Jesus. And the comedian said, well, lately it's been hard to tell the two apart. I'm not pro or anti-Obama in what I'm saying here. I'm saying America was not willing to say we need to repent. It had nothing to do with McCain or Obama. It had to do with whether we'd repent. We didn't want to repent for our greed. We didn't want to repent for our sin. We wanted a Messiah figure. I believe America is being prepared. The church in America is being prepared to swallow a man someday. I don't believe we've seen him yet. But a man someday that will arise as a Messiah figure to save the world without repentance. But there is no salvation without repentance. McCain could not have saved this nation, and Obama could not save this nation. Only Jesus can save this nation. And it's not going to start with the White House and everybody there getting uh, fully saved. It's going to start with you and I, the Church of Jesus Christ. Grassroots America, the church, turning to Christ and beginning to serve God, beginning to show forth the kingdom of God. But we see that the government had turned the people to idolatry. Our government today, under the last president, under today's president, our government is turning us to socialism. Our government is turning us to anything other than Jesus Christ. It is not politically correct to be anything other than a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, it was just signed the other day. I don't know if you saw this. President Obama signed up with the, in the UN, even some things the European nations wouldn't sign, on the side of, of, of Muslim nations to say that any free speech that offends a religion is hate speech. The moment that we start saying that, that if we have free speech and it offends a Muslim brother, not a brother, but it's called in America, a Muslim, a Hindu, then it's hate speech. But anybody can do anything against Jesus Christ and it's considered freedom of speech. But see, that's where our government's taking us. That's where the nation's, that's where the world's headed. Now, in the midst of a government taking the people of Israel to idolatry, you know what God did? He raised up a prophet. The word of the prophetic church is about to confront the nations is about to confront the people of God. A nation cannot be saved. A city cannot be saved without being confronted by the word of the Lord. I don't know if any of you saw a movie a few years back called um, Evan Almighty. Anybody see that? It was a story about a newscaster who uh, was told by God that he was to build an ark. He was a senator, a congressman, something like that. And he was to build an ark because God was going to send judgment on a, a city in northern Virginia. Anyway, uh, just outside of D.C., it was going to be a flood. And so the man, uh, he began, there's a whole story, I don't have time, but he was arguing with God. Finally, he, he said, I'll build the ark. And God caused his clothes to change to where he was, looked like Noah. His beard grew out, hair, all that. And Noah, this man was standing on the bow of the boat, giving a warning to the people of this northern Virginia town, saying that, a ju that judgment is coming. And as I was watching this movie, the Spirit of God came on me. In a movie theater of all places, when I was a teenager, I was told if you were in a movie theater and the rapture happened, you might miss the rapture. <laughs> but sitting in a movie theater, the Spirit of God came on me. I began to weep. And I felt the Spirit of God say, this is the, prophetic, the type of prophetic message that's missing in America. 
See, most prophetic message we get in America is just a pat on the back. God's going to make you rich. God's going to make you wealthy. God's going to do this through you and that for you. And think that those are true words. But what we don't have much in America, what's not popular, what's not politically correct, even in Pentecostal and charismatic churches, unfortunately, is a word that confronts us in our idolatry. The books that sell are how to have your best life now. That's one of the best-selling Christian books right now. How to have your best life now. Does God want to bless you? Yes, he does. But you know what? I don't want my best life now. I want my best life in eternity. I'm not laying up treasures on earth. I'm laying up treasures in heaven. So I'm not trying to be anti anyone, but I'm saying there comes a place where we stop pandering to people's desires, scratching itching ears with our preaching and our doctrine and our prophecy, and we start confronting the idolatry that has existed in the people of God, in the church. So God, in chapter 17 of 1 Kings, verse 1, raised up a prophet. It says, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead. Let's stop there. Have you ever heard of Tishbe other than Elijah? Tishbe was, if you study geography, was a rural area outside the main city. So Elijah was from the other side of the tracks in the rural area, and God took a no-name redneck prophet. <laughs> and stuck him before the king. How many of you know God is about to find no-name people from the wrong side of the tracks to give his word? God's not looking for our degrees and our pedigree. He's not looking. Look, he'll use the rich and the talented and beautiful. So those of you that are rich and talented and beautiful, go for it. The rest of us, <laughs> God will use us just like we are because he's not looking for ability but availability. We want to make ourselves available. What, the, the word you heard earlier this week, coming out of your circumstance to come into your position. So that's where God is wanting us to be. You are called to be a prophetic people. And God is about to raise up prophets, not just individual men and women, but prophetic people. Come on, come on. I understand from pastor that God is stirring a fresh prophetic anointing among you. Can I tell you, when you're truly prophetic, yes, you'll speak with blessing to one another. God will give you insight into the lives of the lost to bring them to the Lord. But there's also going to be an anointing to stand for righteousness in the midst of a culture that is running towards sin and embracing the darkness. Now, Elijah was brought before the king and says this, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain the next few years except at my word. Let's look at a couple things here. One, God is going to take people like you and I of no reputation, people like John the Baptist who say, I must decrease, he must increase. I'm not trying to build my ministry before man. I'm not trying to build the scope of my church to be the end thing. I just want to serve. That's the heart God's been stirring in you. It's the kind of heart God's given your pastors. And so what we see is that God's going to take those kind of people and stick them before the leaders. Can I tell you that the leaders of Stafford, the leaders of, of your region here, the leaders in Washington, D.C., God may take some no-name out of your church, out of your area, and stick you before the leaders of the land to give the word of the Lord. Now, most of us, most of us, I'm just going to get a Kleenex, I'm sweating a little. Uh, most of us, if we had audience with a king or a president, and we were going to have a chance to prophesy to them, we'd want something good to say, wouldn't we? We want to say something that would get us invited back, right? But Elijah, when he stands before the king, he has no comforting words. See, what I notice is this. When I go on the Internet or watch Christian TV, which is very seldom anymore because I 
personally can't stand most Christian television. But when I watch Christian television, when I get on the Internet and I hear what most prophets are prophesying, there's a particular prophet out there, every year he says it's going to be the best Christmas America's ever had. Every year he says it's going to be the best Easter uh, America's ever had. I mean, and every time it doesn't happen, nobody confronts the guy for his false prophecy. And what I notice is as long as you're telling people that God's going to make you a millionaire, that all, the, you know, all these other things, then people will listen and they will not uh, hold you accountable for your words when it doesn't happen. And I'm saying, God, where is the true prophetic that will confront the king? And so God had Elijah confront the king, said, because of your sin, because of the sin of the people, there will be no rain until I say. How many of you know the church, if we said something like that today, they'd laugh at us? What do you mean to you say? The church has no authority. See, today the church is in America, by and large, we're not even mocked and persecuted. We're just ignored. You know, they'll, they'll do a few things uh, that, that might make fun, but by and large, we're ignored. How is it that American had churches on every street corner, Christian TV, Christian radio, bookstores by the glory, everything, and yet we're ignored? Until it comes to elections and what are called the religious right, which many don't even, that are believers don't even belong to the quote-unquote religious right. Isn't it amazing that's how our nation defines the church today? Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? The problem is that they don't, they, they don't pay attention to us unless it comes to politics. So when, when Elijah said, it won't rain until I say so, he knew that he had an authority. God is about to restore the authority in the church. That has nothing to do with how loud we are and how rich we are. It's an authority that is spiritual and the king of the land. The nation is going to take notice of the authority in the people of God. So Elijah had a word of judgment. Said because of the sin it will not rain. So what happened? It didn't rain for a period of three years. Now you would think if God was going to use you to give the prophetic word, he'd at least take you out of the place of judgment to take care of you, right? Guess what? Elijah wasn't allowed to leave the land of famine, the land of drought. But God took care of him during it. I want us to understand something. No matter what our nation is going through, no matter what the world goes through, look, I believe, I believe we're going to see economy recover, but I believe ultimately we're going to see economy fall and lead to a one-world economy. I don't know how, I don't know when, I'm not going to try to prophesy those things. But I do know this, you and I are in the world, but we're not of the world. We will not be able to escape living in a world that has the judgment of God upon it for many things. But in the midst of it, God's going to take care of his people. Think what God did. He took Elijah to a brook called Cherith, and there was water for him. And it says that in the morning and the evening, ravens, birds, brought food and bread and meat for him. That's a miracle. I mean, how many of you like to, you know, you're hungry in the morning, open up your window, and there's a, a bird with your breakfast? <laughs> but now, think this through with me. When a raven brings meat, do you think he's bringing a, um, a grilled steak? Bringing barbecue? <laughs> what kind of meat does a raven bring? Can I be, can I be real here? Roadkill. Stringy meat from a dead animal. Okay, now hear, hear this through with me. 
When a raven brings food, do we think that, that he goes somewhere to a restaurant and picks? Look, I'm not going to make a doctrine here. But I see a raven not bringing cooked meat that's wonderful, but stringy, dead meat that, that Elijah has to do something with. Let me put it this way. God will always take care of his people, but it doesn't always mean that you're going to live, be living high off, the, high off the hog. Understand, there's a mentality in America, in the American church, that bless God, I'm going to give and I'm going to be rich. I believe God will have us give and he'll take care. He wants to bring abundance so we can help others, but there are seasons that all we have is enough to get by. Anybody been there? Amen. Does that mean you're in sin? No. Does that mean you're in lack of faith? No. It means there is a season that God is looking to see. Are you serving him for riches? Or are you willing to say, God, I'm serving you, and I trust you're going to take care of me? But what happened? Verse 7 of chapter 17, 1 Kings. Sometime later, the book dried up. Anybody been in a place where your book's dried up? <laughs> Physically, spiritually, financially, the book's dried up because there's been no rain. Now listen to what happened. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Verse 9, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I've commanded a, a millionaire businessman in that place to supply you with food. But isn't that what we hear? God's going to connect you with the millionaires and the billionaires of the world, and they're going to funnel the money into the kingdom. I believe God's going to do that, but where's our faith? Who are we hoping in? It's amazing to me. You know, Pastor, I have gotten so many words about being a millionaire. I mean, I've had tons of them. And I'm believing God for it because I want to funnel it to the nations. But I mean, I, you know, so many times, by the end of the year, you're going to have a million dollars in your bank account. Well, you know, it hasn't happened yet. I, I'm holding on. But I tell you what, it's amazing how many, how many prophecies about millions that people are getting. Does God want to do it? Yes. But again, where is our faith? Well, Kim and I sometimes will walk into a church to minister. The pastor will say, you know, Russ, we got 10 millionaires in this church. Now, when, when I first started hearing that 20 years ago, I thought, all right, I can't wait to see that offering check. <laughs> I figured out why they had millionaires. They kept the money. <laughs> no, hear, hear me. Okay, hear what I'm saying. Do you know I found this? Almost always small and medium-sized churches are almost always bigger givers per capita and many times an actual dollar amount. So, you know, our, our trust and faith is not in the, the size of the church. It's in God. It's not in the size. It's not in, you know, the boss or the job or the bank account. It's in Christ. I'll give you a little illustration. Back several years ago, Kim needed LASIK eye surgery. When she was about 12 years old, uh, she had some blood sugar problems. Her eyesight went from 2020 to 2540. 2400 is legally blind, and hers was 2540. So she had to get uh, hard contacts and everything else. Well, uh, you know, many years later, her eyes started rejecting them, and, and the hard contacts were not working anymore. So she needed LASIK eye surgery. And this is back when, you know, not a lot of people were doing it, and when you get eye surgery, you don't want to go with a bargain basement. <laughs> you know, you don't want to lose your, your eyes to save a couple thousand dollars. So we, we found a guy that had been hired by the U.S. government to develop LASIK surgery in Kansas City, where we were living at the time in Missouri. And it was going to cost $4,300 to get the LASIK surgery done. Well, we didn't have the money, and we, we were saying, God, you're going to need to provide an, an offering from a church. So, uh, you know, in the natural, I'm trying to look at all the big churches that we preach at and call them and see if we can get in there right before her surgery. 
And while I'm trying to book a service at a big church, this church of, of, oh, I don't know, 15 or 20 people in Springfield, Missouri calls us. And we've been there two or three times before, and every time we go, good people, uh, difficult financially, they gave us a $100 offering every time we went. And so I knew that probably what it would be. And I said, but the pastor wanted us to come right before Kim's surgery. And I said, okay, pastor, we'll come. Well, in the natural, we're going, no, God, we need 4,300, not 100. And, and so we go to the service. We preach. God ministers. And they give me an offering check. It's $100. But before we walk out, this older lady walks up to me. She said, Russ, I've never liked your ministry. Never liked your preaching. Never liked your ministry. But I could quit crying today. She gave me a Pentecostal handshake. You know what those are? You know, a handshake that, that inside is a folded up piece of paper that you hope is a check. <laughs> so she, that, that was in there, and you don't look at it. I mean, you don't pull it out and look at it in front of people. You stick it in your pocket. As soon as you get outside the door, you look at it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I put it in my pocket. Actually, I forgot about it until we got to the restaurant. So Kim and I are in line at the restaurant waiting on the pastors. I said, Kim, some lady that didn't like us gave me a, uh, an offering envelope. And I opened it up, and inside that offering envelope was a check for $4,300 from a lady that didn't like us. I keep saying, God, send more people that don't like us. But what I want us to understand is this. We were looking to what we thought would be the big church to supply the place with all the bigness and all the, the rich people, but instead, God took us to the lowly place. You know what the scripture said here? God took Elijah to Zarephath of Sidon and said, I've commanded a widow woman in that place to supply you with food. Aren't you thankful that God is able to use anyone, anyone to bring provision? It says, so Elijah went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, uh, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I'm going to have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called him, bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. Okay, now I want you to listen. How many of you believe in making statements of faith? Right? We're going to stand on the word of God and his promises. I want you to listen to this widow woman and her statement of faith. I don't have any. Bread or flour, I've only got a little oil, a little jar, um, uh, jar of flour, et cetera, et cetera, where to go. Okay, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar, a little oil in a jug. Here's a confession of faith. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for my son, myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. There's a statement of faith. <laughs> you know what I found? We need to speak faith, but I found this, that God is not waiting for me to make a mistake so he can let judgment fall on me. He's not waiting for me to make a mistake in my words so that he can hold back blessing. I think in too many ways, we have made God our slave. And instead of saying, speak, Lord, your servant hears, we're saying, listen, Lord, your servant speaks. Does God want us to speak faith? Yes. But do you know this? Sometimes my emotions are not in line with my spirit. Anybody else been there? Sometimes my words speak out of my emotions and my soul and not out of my spirit. Anybody ever had that problem? And thank God he sees my heart and he's not bound by everything that I say just because I'm not saying everything perfect. Because what that leads to is a Christianity and a blessing based on my works and not his grace. If I say it right, 
then I get it. If I say it wrong, then I don't get it. Guess what? That is based on your works and not the grace of God. That's not faith. That's mind over matter. It's psychic power. What else should I stir up today? <laughs> Here's her, 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 her statement of faith. I'm going to eat a meal, for, make myself a meal, and we're going to eat it and die. Now listen to the prophet's word. Now, if somebody, I mean, we'd, we'd hope so today if somebody said, I, I, I don't have anything, I'm going to eat my last meal and die. I, I'm going to get kicked out of my house next week. We'd hope if a prophet were among us, they would come and prophesy. The Lord says, don't give up. Son or daughter, I'm with you. You're going to come through. I'm going to bring it through. Watch as God brings in the wealth of the wicked. This, this kind of prophecy would get us stirred up, wouldn't it? I want you to hear the word of the prophet. This doesn't fit with a modern-day uh, idea of what prophets are, does it? Elijah, verse 13, said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. Think that through for a minute. What did she say she was going to do? Feedback. She was going to eat a meal and die. What did the prophet say? Go home and die. Here's the word of the Lord. Go home and do it. And then listen to the audacity of the man of God. Go ahead and die, but first, give me your food. See, now we ought to take the offering up. <laughs> Look, I thank God for his promises are yes and amen, loves to bless, but there comes a time when God's got to confront us in our stinginess, God has got to confront us in our lack of faith. God has got to confront us in our sin and idolatry. And so the word of the Lord said, go ahead, die, but first give me your food. Most of us, we want the promise before we'll give. Not just financially, but of anything of our life. Okay, if, if you want me to give my time, my talent, my money, you want me to do anything for the kingdom of God, what's the return? What's the promise? Last year I got involved in some investment things. And you get around investors, and the first question is, what's the rate of return? When can I get it? You see, and that's the mentality of the church. Not when it comes to business things, but when it comes to the things of God. God, you want this for me? Okay, what do I get in return? What do I get out of it? And that is why so many times we have to tell people over and over and over, here's the blessing, here's the blessing, here's the promise, here's the promise. Please give, please come, please pray, here's the promise. But Elijah did it the exact opposite. He said, you know what, God's God, do it. And then if you do it, here's the promise. And see, that, that's the way we've got to start being as a church of Jesus Christ. We are not going to be like the culture. What can I get out of serving God? We don't serve God for what we can get out of it. We serve God because he's God. Ron Johnson preaches a sermon called Why We Go. And he says we don't go to the lost just to save them from hell. We don't go because we're commanded. We go for God's glory. The ultimate purpose of seeing the lost saved is not just help them escape from hell. The ultimate purpose is that they will stand before God in eternity giving Him glory. It's all about Him. Right. It's all about Him. Right. So why am I consecrated fresh to God? Not so I can get blessed. Not so I can get healed. Not so I can get rich. Not so I can get a word. But I do it because He's worthy. Come on. Come on. He's God. And so Elijah gives her the, 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 uh, the challenge and then he gives her the promise. Verse 14. For this is what the Lord says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry. And today the Lord gives rain on the land. 
I want to give you a word of hope and promise. No matter what's going on in the economy of the world, no matter what's going on in the sin and the culture of the world, those of you and I that say, God, I'm going to confront my own idolatry. Lord, I'm going to depend on you. God's going to take care of us. It may be water in a raven. It may be out of a widow woman. It may be from the uh, unlikely places, but God's going to take care of us in the midst of all of this. But let me close it out with this, because God wants to do more than take care of us, doesn't he? God wants to use us to bring his glory in and change cities and nations. So Elijah is brought back in chapter 18 to stand before King Ahab. And Ahab, when, when he sees Elijah, says, there you are. You want to cause trouble to Israel. Isn't it amazing? It's, it was the king's sin and idolatry that brought the judgment, and yet the king blamed the man of God. The church today... We don't want to be blamed for anything. In the world, if they truly, if we're truly like Jesus, what does the scripture say? The world is going to hate us. But see, today, we do everything we can to be accepted by the world. We to try to change our style. Look, we need to be relevant. Please understand, we need to be relevant to the people we're, we're, we're trying to reach. But too often we, we compromise truth so we don't offend anyone. We can't do that. That's right. Jesus was always relevant, but he would offend the people's sensibilities. He would heal them. He would do miracles. He would provide for them. He would feed them and then say, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. If you don't hate your father and mother, you have no, no business in the kingdom. Speaking of, of course, you know, a comparison, how much we love God would make our love for our family seem as, as hate. We love God so much. So, I believe God is looking for a people that will not compromise, not take the blame, because Elijah said, I haven't caused trouble. You and the sin have. You see, when we go under persecution, there's a, there's a, a tendency to slack off and back off from the hard message of truth. But God is raising up a prophetic people in this day. They will have God's love, God's heart. They will be like Jeremiah, a weeping prophet. We will have the word of truth, but our eyes will be full of tears for those that are coming under the judgment of God. We don't enjoy seeing judgment come, but we've got to understand God's judgment is coming upon sin. And so uh, Elijah said to Ahab, you've caused trouble, you and your father's house because you've sinned. Now this is what I want you to do. Get all of Israel together and bring them to Mount Carmel. Do you notice the king didn't argue with Elijah? He did what he said. You know what? There's coming such an authority of Christ in the church. They may hate us, but they won't be able to ignore us. The king didn't try to ignore Elijah. He didn't try to argue. And he did what he said. God, give us the kind of, of, of anointing and authority in the church where when we speak, they listen. They may not like it, but they listen. If we want to see the kingdom of God come in, it's going to take that kind of authority. So they got all the, uh, the people together, 2 million people, scholars say, in the nation of Israel at that time. They got the 850 false prophets. And Elijah said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If God is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Let's put it in modern English. If Jesus Christ is God, then sell out to him. If his way is not the only way, you're stupid for being in church. If Jesus is not the only way to God, then go out and party. Go out and live like the devil. Enjoy life and all that sin has to offer here because one day you can slide into heaven any old way you want. 
But if Jesus is God, then we've got to quit playing with the world. We've got to quit trying to see how much of the world we can enjoy and still have the blessing of God. The people said nothing. And Elijah said, we're going to have a contest. Whichever God answers by fire, he'll be the real God. The people of Israel said, okay, that's a good idea. Let's see some evidence. So Elijah said to the false prophets, you get a bull, cut it up, put it on the altar to your God. Call on the name of your God, and I'll do the same, and whichever God answers by fire, that'll be God. So we know the story. Um, the prophets of Baal got the bull, they cut it up, put it on the altar, and from morning to noon, they danced, screamed, cried out to God, to their God, Baal and Ashtoreth. Do you know that Baal, one of the things Baal was supposed to be God of was lightning. <laughs> if any God should have been able to send fire from heaven, it should have been the God of lightning. How many of us have the audacity to confront the enemy right on his own turf, right on his own territory? And so the prophets of Baal are crying out morning to noon and nothing is happening. And then from noon to evening, it says the prophets of Baal were not only calling out and crying out, but they began to beat themselves and cut themselves to cry to the God. Have you noticed this? People of the world will destroy their life going after their gods. Beat themselves. You notice you don't have to cheerlead sinners to sin. You don't have to encourage them to sin. And so uh, we see here the false prophets. They were killing themselves, beating themselves. And Elijah, again, I, I use this word, the audacity. I love the audacity of the true prophetic anointing because Elijah began to taunt them. He said, shout louder, maybe your God's on vacation. Anybody remember the Living Bible from a few years ago? In the Living Bible, Elijah literally says, shout louder, maybe your God's sitting on the toilet. <laughs> There's an audacity coming back to the church where we're not concerned about being politically correct. We're not trying to be offensive in ourself, but we're not going to hold back the offense of the cross and the offense of the truth. And so Elijah began to taunt them, and we know nothing happened. Finally, it says, Elijah got together, and you can read it there in 17 and 18 in 1 Kings. But it says he rebuilt the altar of the Lord. You know what that tells me? The altar of the Lord had been in ruins. What's the altar? It's a place of prayer. It's a place of sacrifice. It's a place of consecration. What have you been doing this week? You've been rebuilding an altar of consecration. You have been, as Romans 12 says, offering yourself as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Elijah rebuilt the altar of the Lord. He could cut the bull up, put it on there, and then it says he dug a trench around it. Remember that? Dug a trench around the altar? What did he have the people do in that trench? Dump water in it. Remember how many times? Three times. To fill up a trench. Now think with me for a minute. What had not happened for three years? Hadn't rained. So what did they have almost nothing left of? Water. And so in the midst of not having almost anything, Elijah said, waste what water you have left on the sacrifice for God. Let's take another offering. <laughs> what the, the thing we have, the, the famine of, let's give the last of it and believe God's glory to consume it. So they poured out water three times. And Elijah prayed a simple prayer. Elijah didn't have to go through Pentecostal gyrations to get God to move. You know, I'm thankful that we can be full of life and joy, but I'm thankful that God does not need us to put on a religious act before he'll answer. I don't have to scream. I don't have to cry. I don't have to holler. If I want to, fine. 
But God's not waiting for me to put on a show. He sees the heart. And Elijah prayed a simple prayer, God answer by fire, so the people will know that you are God, you've sent me, and you're turning their hearts back again. The way I phrase it is this. Elijah said, God answer with a visible, physical,